a special treat this morning. We have a special speaker, Tim, Tim Moore, Moore, today. And Glenn's absence. Glenn's away on vacation. And so Tim is, uh, has got an extensive um, career as a pilot in the Air Force and then later training pilots in uh, commercial flying. Tim has been a part of the state legislature in the state of uh, Kentucky. Tim has been a part of all kinds of ministries and served on various ministry boards. And uh, most recently, he took over Lamb and Lion Ministries and is succeeding uh, David Reagan, who is a member of our church and a much-loved person here. And so uh, Tim is here today to preach the word to us, but especially to tell us about a passion that is overriding in his heart, and that is the soon return of Jesus. So would you welcome Tim this morning as he speaks to us today? Thank you, Chris. Well, I greet you in the name of Jesus, our soon returning king, obviously the Lamb of God, the Lion of Judah, who is coming soon and very soon. And I am delighted to be with you today. I'm glad that Glenn and his family have been able to get away. Uh, pastors are really strained during this season of the year, especially with all the activities, and so I pray that he's having a bit of a respite to prepare for all that is coming to celebrate the Lord's first advent in this season of Christmas. You know, thinking about Christmas, I'm delighted to see all the decorations up here. They are beautiful, and the trees themselves look great all together, but it reminds me of the Christmas tree we had at my home a few years ago. You see, after moving into the present house we live in, we had a little land, and it had several cedars on the property, and I was determined that we were going to have a Christmas tree from our own property. So I cut down a cedar tree and brought it in, and it looked something like that. And so it just wasn't quite full enough, and I went and cut some other limbs and zip-tied them in, and it, it was lovely, I thought, but to this day, my kids will not let me live down the Franken-tree that I brought in the house to, uh, to mark Christmas. Well, the last time I was here was on April 25th, and when I was here, I, said, or I asked you, what are you looking forward to? You may remember that conversation that we had. I can tell you right now, many of us are looking forward to Christmas itself. That is in just another 20 days. Men, that means there are only 19 shopping days left, all right? So you need to take advantage of the time while you have it. Uh, my own growing family, which has added two new members since I was here last, I have now four grandchildren, will be together in just 25 days, and I'm certainly looking forward to that. But I thought for a moment we'd have a little Christmas trivia, both from the, the secular world and obviously from Scripture as we dive into the Word of God today. So this is interactive. Please just call out if you know the answer. We'll see how you all do compared to the first hour. So first question, why didn't Ralphie's mom want him to get a BB gun? Shoot your eye out, kid, of course, yes. What was Ralphie's brother's name? Randy, very good. All right, my favorite character. How many sizes too small was the Grinch's heart? Two, three. Yeah, three sizes too small. What was the name of the Grinch's dog? Max, there we go, bang. All right, how old exactly was Cindy Lou who? Cindy Lou to who, I just said it, who was only two, only two, very good. Uh, what did Clarence earn for helping George Bailey? And what happened when he earned this? He got his wings and a bell rang, of course, every time an angel gets his wings, according to the movie. 
What was the name of George and Mary Bailey's youngest daughter, and what did George find in his pocket after his life was restored? Zuzu. Petals. Excellent. All right. How many wise men traveled to see Jesus, and from which direction did they come? It's a trick question. We don't know because we are told how many gifts they brought. They brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but there was more than one. It was a they, but we don't actually know exactly how many. And which direction they come from? The east, of course. Whose prayers were answered when they saw Jesus at the temple when he was 40 days old? Somebody called it. Yes, I heard both of them. Simeon and Anna. Simeon had been uh, told by the Holy Spirit that he would see the Lord's Messiah. And Anna, a prophetess herself, was looking forward to the Messiah, and she was thrilled when she met him. And then finally, what was the name of the angel who sang to the shepherds, who came to deliver a message? No, it was Harold. Uh, not Gabriel in that case. Harold. I got an uncle named Harold. So, for most of us, and we are laughing and having fun, uh, it's funny. We know a lot about Christmas based on the movies and based on the, the secular traditions that are part of our culture. And sometimes we know quite a bit from Scripture. Some of what we know uh, may be more related to tradition than scripture. But regardless, for most of us, Christmas is a time of joy, of warmth, of family, and of peace. Am I right? And yet, for some in our midst, for many in the world, Christmas itself is a time of sadness, isolation, stress, and even depression. You think, how can that be? It's because sometimes they don't have the family and the warmth and the joy that most of us do. It may be this year because some, even in our midst, either here today or watching online, have lost a loved one. And therefore, this will be the first Christmas that they mark without someone special in their lives. And so we have to recognize that sometimes uh, Christmas brings other perils. You know, we celebrate Christmas at the end of December, and that comes very close to what we know as the winter solstice, when the night is longest and the day is shortest. And this year in particular, I would submit that many people almost sense that the world is descending into darkness. Just watch the news, and you understand exactly what I mean. I would also say that the next generation too often is experiencing and exhibiting a tragic and rising sense of hopelessness. Not the young people in our midst this morning, but many of their peers don't have the kind of hope that we proclaim here at Brookhaven Church that you all celebrate every week. Just consider this last week, a 15-year-old young man in Michigan shot and killed four of his classmates. He wounded seven others. And investigators, when they began researching, found handwritten notes by this young man. And here's what he wrote to express the very black thoughts that were swirling in his heart. He wrote, blood everywhere. The world is dead. My life is useless. The thoughts won't stop. Help me. And yet, tragically, nobody helped him in a way that avoided 
a tragedy that impacted so many other lives and families. I say to you this morning, brothers and sisters, it may be daylight outside the walls of this church, but a spiritual darkness is descending on the world, marked by rising anxiety, by hopelessness, and by despair. And yet we gather here because we're commanded to encourage one another. You all know one of my favorite passages in Hebrews, I've shared this before, is Hebrews 10, 23 through 25, which says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, how? As you see the day drawing near. You come here every week to be encouraged and to encourage one another to love and to good deeds because this church, the church of Jesus Christ, is an oasis of hope in the midst of a darkening world. So what can we do, though, when even our lives are impacted by sin and begin to sink into discouragement. What happens when we find ourselves in a valley? You say, well, I, I don't think that should happen to a believer. I can assure you that it does. And we're going to talk about that reality scripturally this morning. So what do we do when we find ourselves caught up and cast down by sin? When evil touches those we love and we are cast into a pit. Well, I want you this morning to turn back in the pages of time and into the pages of the Old Testament. Those of you who follow Lamb and Lion Ministries' Christ in Prophecy television program know that we have been going through Jesus in the Old Testament. And so this morning, we're going to turn back and speak about another young man whose life was marked by a cycle of injustice and tragedy. Let's reflect on the young man you all know as Zephaneth Paneah. Everybody here knows Zephaniah Paneah, right? Yes? Uh, you do. You just may not know it. I can assure you, you're familiar with his story. And by the time we finish this morning, you'll know much more about him and appreciate the power of his living testimony of being light in the midst of darkness. So let's turn to chapter 37 of Genesis and reflect on the life of a young man known as Joseph. See, Joseph was the son of Jacob, also known as Israel. Joseph was the firstborn son of Jacob's favorite wife, his beloved wife, Rachel. And Joseph was the favorite son. As a matter of fact, his father gave him a coat because he was so beloved. It was a very colored coat, as the scripture describes. We have all probably seen or at least heard of the Broadway musical talking about Joseph and his Technicolor dream coat because not only did he have a fancy multicolored coat, Joseph was a dreamer. As a matter of fact, he had several dreams, two of which he shared with his brothers. Dreams where his brothers were going to bow down to him and another dream where his brothers and even his parents were going to bow down to him. So this young man had the audaciousness to tell his older brothers that they were going to bow down to him. How did his brothers treat Joseph? Well, they resented him. They resented that he was daddy's favorite. 
and that he had a fancy coat, and that he shared these dreams that they were going to bow down to him. How dare you think we're going to bow down to you? They not only resented him, they grew to hate him. As a matter of fact, one time the brothers were away with the flocks, leading them north to pasture. Of course, Jacob was living near Hebron, about 20 miles south of Jerusalem. The brothers had gone to Shechem, about 30 miles north of Jerusalem. And Jacob sent Joseph, go and find your brothers and bring back a report. See how they're doing. And as Joseph came to Shechem, the brothers weren't there. They'd gone further north, about another 10 miles to Dothan. And the scripture says that as Joseph was approaching, they recognized him. How'd they recognize their brother from afar? Fancy coat, many colors. And they said, there comes that troublemaking dreamer. And they launched a plan. Several of the brothers advocated that they would just kill him outright. But Reuben, the oldest son, said, no, we can't do that. Reuben was the firstborn, and he was responsible for watching over his brothers on behalf of his father. And he suggested, let's just throw him in this pit. That'll teach him a lesson. And so they took his coat off of him and threw him in the pit. Well, Reuben had to be away for a time, and the other brothers saw a group of Midianite traders coming from the east in a caravan. They were bringing spices and goods from Edom to the east of the Jordan River down through Israel or the land there heading toward Egypt. And they said, hey, why should we just let him lay in a pit? Let's at least earn some money and sell our brother to these Midianite traders. And they did. For 20 pieces of silver, a pittance even in that day, they sold their own brother, and he was carted off to Egypt. Well, when Joseph got to Egypt, he was sold to work in the house of Potiphar, the captain of the guard. And almost immediately, Potiphar recognized in this young man, 17 years old, Scripture tells us, that he had discernment and wisdom beyond his years, that he was gifted as an administrator. And so Joseph was given authority and responsibility, and he was made to be in charge of all Potiphar's household. Joseph thrived, and so did Potiphar. But eventually, Potiphar's wife recognized this good-looking young Hebrew slave, and she uh, tried to entice him. She called on him to lie down with her. You see this word down is repeated. I've talked about how Joseph was thrown down into the pit. He was carried away down into Egypt, and now he's being enticed to lie down with Potiphar's wife. But Joseph, knowing that this would be a sin against Potiphar and against the holy God, said, no, I can't do that. And he fled from Potiphar's wife. So she falsely accused him, causing Potiphar to be outraged, and he threw him down into prison, or what scripture later calls in the same chapter, a dungeon. Well, Joseph's life had gone from bad to worse and now to worse again. And he languished in prison. And yet, after a time, he encountered two other prisoners, Pharaoh's baker and his cup bearer, men who Pharaoh had become displeased with, so he threw them into the dungeon. And there they were. And each of them had a dream. Now, you have to realize the baker and the cup bearer would have been men of great responsibility. Pharaoh's life depended on his ability to trust those who prepared his food and who handed him drink. As a matter of fact, the cupbearer would typically take a sip to test 
the drink before Pharaoh would get it, but it was a position of great trust and responsibility. And here they were in the dungeon, and they had a dream. Well, they eventually shared their dream with Joseph, and he was able to interpret their dream. God revealed to him what the dreams meant. The baker would die, but the cupbearer would be lifted back up to his position. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. And for a moment, Joseph may have thought, okay, the cupbearer has been restored to be at the very right hand of Pharaoh. Maybe he'll say a word to Pharaoh on my behalf, and I'll be released from this prison. But Scripture says for two more years, Joseph languished in prison, unjustly held in a dungeon. You think that hope would begin to fade after a time if this was you or me? I have a friend who was imprisoned in Turkey. You've seen his story because he was held unjustly, not allowed to have any contact with Americans. He was a missionary, and he says that your mind begins to play with you. And even as a missionary of the Lord God, he said, you begin to think, does anybody even know I'm here? Does anybody care? But after two years, Pharaoh had a dream. And he asked his wise guys and his seers to interpret the dream. None of them could. And the cupbearer overhearing this said, Pharaoh, I know somebody who can tell you what your dream is. Because when I was in prison, he interpreted my dream and the baker's dream. And both of his interpretations were truthful. And so Pharaoh called for Joseph. He was raised up out of prison. They shaved him. He washed and cleaned up. I'm sure he was filthy, put on a clean garment, and came before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said this in chapter 41, verse 5. He said, I have heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Joseph answered him saying, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And indeed, he did. And Pharaoh was so impressed that he recognized that Joseph was wise and discerning far beyond his years. And he have elevated him to be the number two man in the entire kingdom, second only to Pharaoh. So that he could indeed save up the crops and the bounty for seven years before they would be followed by seven years of famine. But I want you to think about Joseph's cycle of life. He was loved by his father, the most beloved son, and yet he was resented by his brothers. He was given insights and vision by God, even as a very young man. But the very visions he had caused his brothers to hate him even more, and they threw him into a pit. Not just the pit of despair that we think about from the princess bride, but a true pit where hope began to fade even there. He was sold to Midianite traders, as I said, and then sold to Potiphar. But under Potiphar's household, even as a slave, he saw great success. His life was on the ascend again. He was trusted and given a position of responsibility. But because of a false accusation, he was downcast again into prison. A glimmer of hope through the cupbearer began to fade until finally he was elevated and restored. Can you imagine what? Joseph's life would have been like if at any of those moments of being downcast, he had just given up. He had but despaired and thought, there is no hope. There's no point in even remaining faithful. But we know that Joseph did rise back up. How could he do that? How could he be ready and poised to be a blessing and to rise again? 
Well, Genesis 39 says four different times the Lord was with Joseph. Not just when things were going good for Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph even when he was downcast. That pretty much puts to lie the claim by some today that if if the Lord is with you, you'll have only blessing and prosperity. That's not scriptural, brothers and sisters. Jesus himself said, in this world you will have trouble, but I have overcome the world. No, the promise is that regardless of our circumstances, the Lord is with us if we put our trust in Jesus Christ. Well, later, Joseph's brothers came to buy grain in Egypt because of the great famine that was throughout the region, just as Joseph had prophesied. They bowed down before him. He immediately recognized them and tested them to determine their own hearts. His brothers, imperfect and self-centered as they were, demonstrated that they had a desire to honor their father and to preserve the family lineage, the line of promise of God. And so Joseph's tender heart was touched. When he finally revealed himself again, after his brothers had indeed bowed down to him, he testified to his deep and abiding faith in God. And the fact that he trusted in God's omnipotent providence, even in the midst of his suffering, he knew that God had had a plan. Pharaoh himself came to believe in Joseph's God, but Joseph recognized that the purposes of God were manifest even in his sufferings. Do you realize that? Some of us here today, some of you watching, may be in a a moment of life that has been discouraging to you where the, the test is heavy, the burden is heavy. And you wonder, God, do you even care? I can assure you he does. And that he is working all things for his own glory and purpose. Joseph had to go to Egypt to be able to be a conduit of blessing for his own brothers. David captures the experience of Joseph when he writes in Psalm 40 these words. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise for our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord, even a pagan ruler like Potiphar, based on the testimony and faithfulness of one who trust in the Lord. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. This is verse 8. And again, Joseph, at the tender age of 17, had already had the word of God planted deep in his heart so that he did not stray, and so that he did not lose faith in the Lord. David sums up by pointing to a coming one when he says in verse 16, let all who seek you. Rejoice and be glad in you. Let those who love your salvation say continually, the Lord be magnified. Let me just tell you, even as David wrote these words, salvation was not a concept, an idea. Salvation is none other than the person of our Messiah, Jesus Christ. Let all who know him praise the Lord and say, O Lord, 
Let your name be magnified. Well, Joseph's life was clearly a foreshadow of Jesus' own. That is not to say that Joseph mirrored Jesus. Joseph was not perfect. But many of the attributes and the characteristics, the experience of his life, prove that he is a type of the Messiah. Now, when we talk about a prophetic type, that is a person or even a thing that symbolizes or exemplifies the characteristics of something or someone to follow. So in the Old Testament, we can say Moses was a type of Christ. He was the deliverer who came to bring his God's chosen people out of captivity. Joseph was a type of the Messiah. David was a type of the Messiah. None of them perfect, but all of them foreshadowing the greater one to come. Inanimate objects like the Ark of the Covenant are types of the Messiah. This, this wooden box covered with gold representing the divinity of God, filled with the Ten Commandments, a, a pot, a jar of manna, and Aaron's rod that budded and covered over at the mercy seat of God by two angels, two cherubim, pointing us to Jesus Christ. So let's think about Jesus' life. We know that he was beloved by the Father. As a matter of fact, God the Father personally testifies in Mark chapter 1, verse 11, and in Matthew 3, 17, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. Those words were audibly heard at Jesus' baptism. And yet, he was feared and hated by Herod. Herod sought to kill him and did indeed murder all the babies younger than two years in the region of Bethlehem after the Magi came and visited. Jesus was adored by shepherds and foreign Magi, but only two expectant, hopeful Jews, as is recorded. And yet, he was resented by many of his brothers and not even believed at times by his own family. His parents didn't understand exactly what his mission and purpose was. And later, as he began preaching and teaching, Three different times it records that his family came not really believing him. In Mark chapter 3, verse 30, it says, When he came home, his own people, his family, went out to take custody of him, custody of him, for they were saying, He has lost his senses. In John chapter 7, it says, Therefore his brothers said to him, Leave here and go. For not even his brothers were believing in him. Later, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 46 through 50, it says that while he was speaking, his mother and his brothers came to see him. They were seeking to take him away. And Jesus responded, who are my mother and who are my brothers? You see, Jesus was not understood or believed even by his own people. He was given wisdom and discernment by God when he was 12 years old. He confounded the priests and the teachers in Jerusalem with his great wisdom, but even that wisdom caused him to be hated by those same priests and those Sadducees and Pharisees to the point that they paid 30 silver pieces for him to be betrayed by Judas Iscariot. Again, a pittance even in that day and age for a man's life. He was handed over to Gentiles, much like Joseph, but in Jesus' case it was handed over to be killed. And yet he was raised up to life everlasting. Even then, after his resurrection, he was not embraced by most of his brethren. And so, 
as the apostles demonstrated when many Jews refused to put their faith in Christ, they went to the Gentiles. You and I, most of us here today, are beneficiaries of that providence of God that the blessing has come to all the nations. Praise the Lord. And in the fullness of time, the Jewish people will come to recognize the Lord as Messiah as well. But we know that he was exalted and lifted up to be seated at the right hand of God the Father, and that in the fullness of time, he will receive glory and honor and praise when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord, and he will ascend to the throne of his father, David, in Jerusalem. This cycle of up and down demonstrates that in the life of Christ, the greatest down is that he came down from heaven so that you and I, can be lifted up to life everlasting. Well, to an outside observer, you think, well, how can Jesus have suffered like this? Unlike Joseph, who it says the Lord was with him, Jesus Christ was the Lord. He is the anointed one. And here again, we cannot fathom the ways of God, but if we trust him, we see the glory of his purpose, of his eternal plan, which involved and required that Christ be crucified, that he die, that he be buried, and that he be resurrected to life everlasting. And that is the good news to all who believe. It was that suffering, that death, that downcasting that gives us the hope of being lifted up forevermore. And indeed, those who put our trust in him, we will live and dwell with him forever. Just as we sang today, he's got a place for us. He's been preparing a place for you and me until the time he comes to bring us to himself. Now let's just consider this regarding the trials that Jesus endured. The writer of Hebrews says this in chapter 5. He says, in the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. In other words, his devotion and reverence to God Almighty. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, even his disciples didn't understand that after he was resurrected completely because it took the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit to really illuminate their hearts, to clarify their mission, to embolden their testimony, and to provide them the power to endure every hardship. So what does this mean for you and me? Do you ever have to endure hardship in this life? Have you ever had to walk through a valley and endure a season of suffering? Well, that's common to all of us. But this is what James wrote in James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And then later, James says this in verse 12. Blessed is a man, and I'll indeed say, obviously, and a woman, 
who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And while I'm on the subject of crowns, let's look what Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. He said, in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give an award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Regardless of the sufferings that we endure in this life that produce perseverance and that actually deepen our faith, we are promised a crown of life. And if you are looking forward to, with great anticipation, like Simeon and Anna, the appearing of God's Messiah, then as Paul says, you are promised a crown of righteousness. And I truly believe with all my heart that just like Simeon and Anna, there are many in this room and watching online that will see the Lord's Messiah in this lifetime. Do you lay hold of that promise and look forward to it with great anticipation? So, again, what does this mean to us if we find ourselves walking through a valley I said already, had Joseph lost hope any time that he was cast down, he wouldn't have been ready when the opportunity came, when the Lord directed his path back up to the next plateau, to even a higher level of blessing. We have to trust, as Joseph did, in the Lord, knowing that every night will come to an end and that there are greater heights lying ahead. I take us to Philippians chapter 2, where Paul wrote this. Therefore, if there be any encouragement in Christ, and since there's a therefore, let me back up for just a second, and let's see what the therefore is there for. So I'm going to read in chapter 1, verse 21 through 28. Paul says, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor to me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Amen? Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. You see Paul's determination to encourage those around him. Do you see why the writer of Hebrews says, we gather together to encourage one another? And that is a purpose for our faithful walk with Christ. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you for all your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. I love that idea of standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents. How many of us in a moment of confession will admit that we watch the daily news and read the newspaper in our alarm by what we see happening in our world? It looks like Satan is on the offensive and he's winning. But Paul says, in no way alarmed by your opponents because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. In no way alarmed by your opponents. 
which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. And that too from God. For to you it has been granted, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Brothers and sisters in Christ, there is suffering coming. There's persecution coming in this country. But this very morning, there are Christians gathered in other parts of the world who know nothing but persecution and suffering. Our brothers and sisters in China, in North Korea, in Afghanistan, I could count off a whole host of places where Christians suffer ongoingly for the name of Christ. Experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Therefore, we get back to chapter 2. Understanding what the therefore is there for. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ. Is there any encouragement in Christ? Yes. If there is any consolation of love. Is there any consolation of love? Yes. If there is any fellowship of the Spirit. Is there any fellowship of the Spirit? Yes. If any affection and compassion. Is there any affection and compassion in the Lord God Almighty? Yes and yes. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. What's that purpose? To be like Christ. To reflect the love and the light of Christ in this dark world. This is a season of light. Whether it's Hanukkah in the Jewish tradition, a festival of light, or Christmas, why do we decorate our trees and our homes and the eaves of our homes with houses, or excuse me, with lights? Because we are reflecting that a light has come into the world. Paul went on to say this to the Philippians in chapter 2, verse 14 through 16. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Do you think that the Philippians lived in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation and could stand for truth and for God Almighty, that that does not also apply to us? Are we living in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation? More so day by day. But Paul says that we should be above reproach, even in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. I love that phrase, too, because it reminds me of the movie Braveheart when William Wallace says, hold, hold, as the enemy is charging across the battlefield because he knew that if his ragtag army held together and stood fast, they would be victorious. Brothers and sisters of Christ, today I tell you to hold and to stand firm in the Lord God, because the victory is not just ours, it is His. And we cannot flee the battlefield. Hold fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. So, let's go back to my original theme about Christmas. And the misconceptions versus the reality of the season we're in. Now, don't get me wrong. I love Christmas. I really do. I have a daughter, my middle daughter, Eliza Kate, truly loves Christmas. She listens to Christmas music year-round. She keeps a decorated tree up all year-round. She loves Christmas. She loves the memories and the warmth. But sometimes it's easier for us to soften 
what really happened in that first Christmas to a gentle greeting card scene or to relegate Jesus Christ to being in a manger forever. We're kind of like Ricky Bobby and Talladega Nights who like the, just a the little baby Jesus, little Christmas baby Jesus. Why? Well, we adore him because he was wrapped in swaddling clothes. He lied in a manger. He was surrounded by lowing cattle. Do most of us even know what lowing cattle do? What, what does it mean to low? But he is soft and sweet, and he, he never even cries, as the song says. He will stay by our cradle when we're young, and he'll shower us with material blessings and riches all the days of our lives. But that's not why Jesus came. The gift of Christmas is not in the abundance of stuff that we accumulate or even what we give to each other and our children. The gift of Christmas is Christ himself. And you talk about a cycle of darkness and despair. Jesus entered the world at a moment when the Roman Empire had descended and it was a very dark period of time. The Jews in Israel and Judea were hopeful for a military leader who would help them reascend as a nation and exalt their, na their sovereignty. This misguided hope was crushed in A.D. 70 as the Jews were wiped out from Judea and scattered around the world. The Jews were ill-served by religious leaders who split hairs over the law but did not show any sign of love or of hope. And the, from the moment he arrived, Jesus' life was marked by a lowly, ignored existence by most of his own people. Uncelebrated by his brethren, as I've already said, hated and hunted, first by Herod and then by the Pharisees and Sadducees and priests, and largely even misunderstood by his own family and followers. But John says this, while the world was marked by darkness and death, light dawned. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. John would later write in 1 John chapter 2, verse 8, On the other hand, I am writing you a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So my question again to you this morning, is he shining in your life? Do you come here to encourage your fellow brothers and sisters, even those who may be going through a trial and suffering inside? We all say, hey, how you doing? I'm fine. How you doing? I'm fine. I'm fine, fine. Everybody's fine. While inside, some of us are hurting and need to have a little light and encouragement shine. When we go out into the world, there are young men, like I spoke of earlier, who know nothing but despair. Does the light show, so emanate from our being that we are like lighthouses, standing on the rock and shining a light of hope to those who find themselves tossed in a storm of darkness? I pray that we do. So, what can we learn from Joseph, from Zephanath Paneah? Well, here are the lessons of his life testimony. First of all, we need to remain faithful and hopeful in the midst of, or perhaps in spite of, discouraging circumstances in our life because they will come. We need to remain faithful and hopeful. How? Well, the same way Joseph did. 
The Bible says the Lord was with him. Those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, the Lord is with us. Joseph never lost hope, and he was ready to seize the next opportunity. In fact, he grew in faithfulness in the midst of his circumstances. And that leads us to the second lesson. We need to understand that God's ways and sometimes even his plan for our lives are beyond our understanding, at least in this moment. In hindsight, we sometimes understand, but in the midst of the the challenge, in the midst of the struggle and the suffering, we oftentimes don't. But Joseph trusted God. He did not lie down and give up even when the the circumstances were seemingly hopeless. As a slave, he served faithfully and caused Potiphar's house to prosper and then caused even the, the prison to prosper. Everything and everyone he touched was blessed. And that brings up my third lesson. And that is that we need to stand ready to bless those around us, even those who persecute us and mistreat us. As the Lord talked about in Matthew chapter 5 and Luke 6, Joseph was indeed a conduit of blessing to those around him, his slave masters, and to his brothers. They didn't deserve it. But Joseph recognized that he was sent to Egypt to be a conduit of blessing. Not to give them a comeuppance, not to have revenge on them for their faithlessness to him, but to pour back into their lives blessing. As a matter of fact, Joseph credited everything that had happened to him to God. Can you imagine? Here's what he said in Genesis chapter 45, verse 8. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here. Now, wait just a minute. I thought they sold him into slavery and for 20 pieces of silver had him taken down to Egypt. But Joseph said, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord over all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. What faithfulness, what trust in the Lord to recognize that even the tragedies of life are to serve God's purpose and to be a blessing to others and to give glory to God. Pharaoh recognized the wisdom of Joseph and the power of the God he served. He is the one who gave Joseph the name Zephanath-Paneah, an Egyptian name that means God speaks, he lives. Pharaoh had never known another God that spoke and that proved that he lives. But because of Joseph's faithfulness in spite of and through his circumstances, that pagan ruler came to know and respect the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The writer of Hebrews tells us this, God long ago, after he, excuse me, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in many prophets and in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us through his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. God speaks. He lives. He rose from the dead and he lives forevermore and he speaks through
through the testimony of Jesus Christ. Matthew records that Jesus' birth itself fulfilled all that was spoken by the Lord through his prophets, including Isaiah 7.14, which says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. We sang about him this morning. What does that mean? God with us. Again, God's only son, his beloved son, the appointed, anointed Messiah of Israel, was sent by God into this dark, dark world to offer light. He gives comfort to the sick, healing to the brokenhearted, hope to the hopeless, and eternal life to those who are condemned to die. Is the Lord with you this morning? If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, then he is with you through the presence of his Holy Spirit and regardless of your circumstances. You may not always feel like he is there. Sometimes when you're enduring a trial or suffering persecution, it may seem like he is silent and distant. But just as the Lord was with Joseph, even in the midst of his darkest hours, he is with you. I'm reminded of what Jacob came to realize as he fled from his brother Esau. He laid down at one point and had a vision. And when he woke up, this was his testimony in Genesis chapter 28. Surely Jacob woke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. Brother or sister, you may be in a place right now where you wonder, Is the Lord even here I don't hear him. I don't, I don't sense his presence. In hindsight, if you will continue to trust in him, you will know the Lord was with me, even though at that moment I did not know it. He was carrying me through that valley. Do you know him? He's coming again soon and very soon, and it won't be as a babe lying in a manger he will come to fulfill all his promises to those who have trusted in him. And he will be our blessed hope. But if you haven't put your trust in him, he will come again as your holy terror. John 3.36 says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son, how? By first believing in him and trusting in him, will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. It's an either-or proposition. There are some people who say, well, I'll just put off, wait, and decide. I, I just don't want to decide right now. Someday later, I'll just kind of hang out in this, this gray middle zone. There's no gray. As a matter of fact, as one songwriter poet said, if you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. If you don't embrace Christ as your Savior, as your Lord, then the wrath of God abides on you. My plea to you is don't wait another day, not even another hour. This very morning, come forward. Chris is going to come in a minute and share a word about Brookhaven and how you can be a blessing in this place. But don't wander in darkness. Light has come into the world. Let him illuminate your heart. Come forward this morning. Speak to Chris, speak to me, and accept this wonderful gift. It'd be a fantastic way to, to begin this Christmas season and to know that the Lord is with you. To be able to realize He speaks. He lives. He lives within my heart.
And then I'll just say this to, to close. Uh, in the words of Paul to the church at Corinth, this is 2 Corinthians 13, when Paul said, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen and amen. Thank you, Tim. We appreciate that message. You'd like to thank Tim this morning for being here? Thank you. If you are here this morning or online and are, would like to give your life to Christ, as Tim was holding out that invitation, if you're here, there is a gray card that says, I have decided. And you can check on that card that you've uh, asked Jesus to save you for your sin, from your sins for the first time and turn that in. We've got offering boxes on the back of uh, either side of the auditorium. If you are online, the uh, information to text to is on the screen, and we can uh, let you know as well what a next step is for following Jesus. Uh, also, if you'd like to be baptized, or you're interested in joining the church, or you're interested in getting involved in the many ways we serve our community and spread the message of Christ, you can all check that on the gray card this morning, and we will reach out and contact you and talk to you about next steps. If you're a guest here today, we hope that you have felt welcome and that you felt like you were at home, not a guest today. But if you are here, I would like you to ask, to ask you to fill out the blue card, please, and also put that in the offering boxes on your way out today so that we can reach out and contact you and communicate with you some information uh, about the church. I want to remind you also, uh, those boxes are a way to give and to worship the Lord. And so if you would, on your way out, if you came prepared to give today, would you give to the Lord and honor Him in that way? Please stand with me as we prepare to close, and we're going to pray, and you'll be dismissed. Father, we want to thank you for this wonderful time of year where we celebrate Jesus coming into this dark world to be the light. What a great reminder of that this morning. And Lord, you didn't just uh, come to be the light for us. You want us to share that light with other people. So I pray that you would put that on our hearts to do this season, that we would pause and do what it takes to keep Christ at the middle of the center of the celebration in our hearts and minds. Bless us as we go through this week. Lord, help us live as if you are coming back any moment, because indeed you may. And if you don't, I pray you'd bring us back safely next week. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Have a great week.